Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Chronicles 2? Here's the plan I mentioned last week. We're looking at 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles simultaneously, but we start with 1 Chronicles, which takes us to 2 Samuel chapter 1. It'll make sense as we go along, I hope. One thing I know that doesn't make sense is the tiny writing on this. Uh, <laughs> it looked better on my computer than it does here. We're looking at the next part of the genealogy, which goes through 1 Chronicles 9. We should have in our minds the wonder of the sovereign grace of God as the story of redemption written in human history works itself out in a, in a world that is growing in population and growing in complexity and growing politically and all of these other things. But God established a purpose in Genesis 3.15 with regard to the seed of the woman. And we saw last time in the pre-flood world and that which immediately is after that through Abraham and so forth. We saw how regardless of what was happening in the world, God's focus was on the people whom he had called himself upon the people into whom he had deposited the promise of the coming of the Redeemer. Now, all the rest of the world is carrying on with its activities and, and uh, political intrigue and war and whatever else. But the purpose of God is being written in the lives of people that to the rest of the world don't mean anything. But they mean everything to you and me because these people are the progenitors of the Christ. They carry the promise of redemption. And it's a promise that God will indeed deliver on. So we're going to continue looking at the genealogy and we will all the way through chapter nine, which will then take us to David and the adventures of David, which carries us then back to second Samuel. But the, the story, the, the story of redemption as God gives it in his word is something that makes, makes the rest of the world irrelevant except in this sense that God would use the nations of the world to either protect or correct his people and his promise. That's their value. In the story of redemption, that's the only value they have. The power of humankind is in the sovereign grace of God as it works itself out in the lives of these people. So we saw last time, you know, you, you have Adam and Eve and, and then the human, the human race grows and then it narrows down to a guy who has the covenant and it grows from there and then it narrows down to the next guy who has the covenant of God. That methodology continues here in chapter two. I know it's hard for you to read. This is just, I just found some stuff that I would present in a slide. This is just like the flow of history. And regardless of what all is happening in the rest of the world, we'll look at some of that as we, as we get to the end of this study tonight. These things were happening in the rest of the world and those are the things that make the history books. But here are these common folks, sheep herders, just people who, who live lives and they, they, they fail in some way. The failures are written into the genealogy. This the chronicler. Some people think it was Ezra. But the chronicler, whoever was the author or the recorder, he more or less copied what was already there. And he, he arranged it in First and Second Chronicles, which together are one book in the Hebrew Bible. 
deals with David and the sons of David. Now, first and second Kings is different. It, it expands and also deals with the northern kingdom of Israel, but we're not there yet. We're not in that part. So here, keeping up with the theme of this genealogy, and it's more than a genealogy. It is a living testament to the hand of God in the world. Sheep herder, Mr. Nobody. He has a wife. He has a couple of wives. He'll have a, he'll have a slave who is a concubine. He'll have sons. And then one of those sons is designated in, in the gen, and he has sons, and one of those is designated. And all this other stuff is happening in the world. But here is the real story. This is the real action. The lives of these people. Simple. Not much is said about most of them. We have to look in other parts of the scriptures to exact and extract certain details about some of them. But God knows every detail of their lives and we're going to see that as we go along. Okay, here's another one. The, the, the curve here leads to that blue line, which is the flood. We've already studied that in the chronology. And it moves from there. And the great things that are happening in the world are happening at, at this era. They're happening in Mesopotamia. They're in the land of Canaan and in Egypt. We're not quite yet to that kingdom of Israel and Assyria and Babylon. We're not quite there yet. So this is where we are in chapter 2 in sort of the middle, the middle of this thing. All right. And we move over. You see, let's see. You see David right there. It ends, what we're studying, kind of, it sort of ends with David, but it gives us some other details, and I'll explain why those details are there as we get to them. So here's, here's the world, and here are names. These are names that, that are important to God, not important to the world. And really, when they lived, they really didn't see themselves as that important. But God used them. God, God had a purpose for them. And they were, their names are preserved uh, here in the Bible for all the other people who lived in the world or even the other people who lived in their family or their clan or tribe or whatever. These particular people are recorded because this is God performing what he said he would do, his plan, his purpose of redemption. Preserving people, humankind being led to the last Adam, from the first Adam. And so these, these genealogies that we see are just brimming with life and stories and characters. And they're important because God had his eye on them. There were pharaohs in Egypt and there, was, there were kings in Mesopotamia. He had all these governors and satraps and all these other people who ruled in power and in authority. And they were so important. But God's eye and his story was focused on some simple guy who had some sheep and, and, and maybe some goats and stuff. And he lived out there in a pastoral type of life feeding his animals and just living his life, probably praising God in the best way that he could with the revelation that he had in his day, not realizing that the hand of God was on him in a profound way. Same can be true of you and me. We just never know. We just praise and worship the creator and God does what he will do. So, then we look here where, where our First Chronicles fits. First Chronicles fits with part of First Samuel and all of Second Samuel. And then Second Chronicles, which we're not going to worry about tonight. So that's where we fit in the, in the lineup of the books of, uh, of, of the Word of God, of the Bible. Now, that's not easy to see either, is it? There's a chronology there. That'll get more detailed as we go. We're not going to worry about that. That's kind of 
blurry anyway. So the chronology that we started last time continues from Jacob to David. Now this is chapter 2. The genealogies will continue on through chapter 9. And these nine chapters cover thousands of years. Maybe hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in, in the world and certain parts of the world that have been foreordained by God to be the place where God is working out his purpose directly through the people whom he would choose and whom he would bless and whom he would look over and, and watch over as it moves from one generation to the next. So God has his eye on humanity and every human being is important. And God knows whom he will use in a special way for his purpose. And we see that all written here in what we're going to study. So now let's look at this. This is the family of Judah. These are the sons of Israel or Jacob. Reuben, uh, Simon, uh, Simon, Simeon, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All right. Let's depart from all those names and focus on one who is Judah. Why? Because Judah is the progenitor of the Christ. Jacob or Israel has these sons and those 12 sons become 12 tribes and those 12 tribes become the nation of Israel. But there is one son, one tribe who now is exclusive and that is Judah. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Three were born to him from the daughter of Shuah. The Canaanite or Canaanites. And Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was evil in the, in the eyes of Yahweh, and he put him to death. If you study the stories of Ur and Onan, and you go back in there, the Leveret marriage law, there was a, there was a law, it wasn't the Leveret law at this point in time, but it was still part of the expectation of the people of God that if, if an older brother died or whatever, the younger would take his widow and with the widow, they would have a child and that child would be seen as the heir of the dead brother and he would, he would receive whatever the brother was to receive. He would receive that inheritance. And the story is a long story. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it, this thing, this sort of thing happens back in the day of Aaron Onan, and, and one of them gets irritated because he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't, he doesn't want to give himself over to his brother's identity, you know. And he does something he shouldn't have done, and God killed him. Killed him. Put him to death. Why? Well, this thing... This thing is in the lineage and in the action of God working in the lineage of the seed of woman. And if someone was supposed to do something in a special way and they didn't do it, this was about as bad as you can. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a curse against the promise of the Christ. So this is what happened and it's briefly alluded to here in uh, chapter 3. Now, Chapter 4, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him, that is Judah, Perez and Zerah. They were twins. And all the sons of Judah were five. Okay. You go and look at the, lineage, the, uh, the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And you will see that there's nothing. <laughs> Some of those people are really bad. Not the least of whom was Judah. The story of Judah and his daughter-in-law is just awful. It's an awful story. Judah 
parts ways with a traveling companion. He says, I'm, I'm going to go in over here to this prostitute's tent and spend a little time and then I'll head home. Long story short, Tamar saw what was happening and so she assumed the, the role of a prostitute. And so he goes in and with his daughter-in-law and she gets pregnant by her father-in-law with twins. Now these people are in the lineage, they're in the genealogy of Jesus. This is an awful story because Pettis, Pettis the one of the twins is in the genealogy of Christ. But it's here because here, this is sovereign grace. God is at work. Nothing is going to stop the work of God. When in Genesis 49, when Judah, when Israel was on his deathbed, Jacob, he gave a, a certain prophecy, and, and in most cases, a blessing to each of his 12 sons. And when he came to Judah, his prophecy was that Judah would be the royal tribe. The scepter shall not depart from his thigh, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh was the name of the Christ that Jacob used. He didn't know what he was going to be called. So to Jacob, which is a, it's a form of peace. Some believe that Shiloh means peace giver. In whatever the case, he, he had a sense of peace when he thought of the line of Judah. And so he said that Judah would be the one who would be the, the, the progenitor of the royal line of, of kings. Now this is Israel prophesying about his son. And then, and then Judah just lives an awful life at this point. And his daughter-in-law becomes pregnant with his twin sons. So the story continues. All kinds, of th all kinds of things. Satan is throwing his fiery darts and working his tricks Profiling people and digging traps for them to set in. But the sovereign grace of God overrules everything. So here it comes now. Perez. So all the attention moves to him. His sons are Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Zerah. Okay, Zerah is the other twin, right? It just, sort of, it just sort of falls off the edge to let us know that he's there and these things are happening. If you go down here, this is, okay. As we look at the names and as we get little Hebrew phrases in here, it helps people who read this, especially in the, people in that land, in that day, in that culture. It helps them to understand the whys and the wherefores of the very geography of their land. Why are these people over here? Why are these people not over here with these people? So forth. One thing we get here from the Hebraism in uh, verse 6, uh, the sons of Zerah. Now that's the other guy. That's not, he's not in the genealogy of Christ, but it's the other twin. Zimri, Ethan, Haman, Kakol, Derah. All of them five. Now, you could put brackets and you could interject a word here because the idea is in the Hebrew language, all of them, five, you could say governors or princes or governors or something. People would understand then why these guys are there and what importance they had in, in their day in the overall story of God's redemption. Okay, sons of Karmi, 
I called her the trouble of Israel. Now they changed, the chronicler changed his name to mean like trouble or something. His name was Achan. Achan, you remember he, he, he kept back something he wasn't supposed to keep. And uh, a curse, they lost the battle. A curse fell on Israel until Joshua says, somebody ain't right. Finally, he confessed. They killed him, killed his family, wiped him out. He, his name, he refers to him here as Achar. So we're, we're getting into the time of Joshua. He's called the troubler of Israel who committed a trespass in the consecrated property. The sons of Atan, Azariah, the sons of Hezron, who were born to him, Jerah, Me'il, Ram, Kelubai. Okay, so Hezron now is the son of Perez who carries the promise of the Christ. He didn't know that. Perez didn't know that. Judah may or may not have thought something about the prophecy that was made to him. Obviously, it didn't seem too precious to him in his life. So we turn our attention here to Hezron, who were born to him, Jeremiah Ram. Now, Ram is the next one who carries the promise of the Christ. And Kalubai. Ram begat Aminadab. Okay, Aminadab carries the promise of the Christ. Aminadab begat Nashon. Nashon carries the promise of the Christ. The prince of the children of Israel. Now that he's looked up to, he was a special leader, a type of leader in his day. Nashon begat Salma, who is also known as Salmon. He carried, Salma carries the promise of the Christ. Salma begat Boaz. Now Boaz brings us to about 1200 BC. So we just went from about, we just went through 700 years of history. And the promise of the Christ was never lost in the focus of God, never. Regardless of what else was happening in the world, regardless of what the other people were doing, regardless of the fact that Regardless of the fact that there were five governors and they were and and, and they would have settled lands and, and the geography would have been named and so forth. Not going to get into that right now. But their names are there to help us understand the place, the people, and the promise. Mainly the promise. So we know about Boaz, right? Boaz. Not the one on Sand Mountain. This guy was in Bethel, Bethlehem. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begot Ishai or Jesse. Jesse, Ishai. Jesse begot his firstborn, Eliab, and Abinadab, the second one. Shamia, the third one. Netanel, the fourth. Radai, the fifth. Ozim, the sixth. David, the seventh. Now there's another place in the scripture that mentions eight sons. There is a reason for that. I'm not going to get into it now. But in the genealogy, this is the way that it's listed. Remember Ezra writes, and Ezra, if he is the chronicler, whoever the chronicler was wrote probably in the 400s BC. So the chronicler had access to all kinds of records, they would have come from synagogues and from the temple. Uh, all, all kinds of records were available uh, to the chronicler. And that, that's an important point for us to remember. So now we come to David. David. So, all right. Nashon, progenitor of Christ. Boaz, the progenitor of Christ. Obed, Jesse, David. Generation after generation after generation. Now, when we come to David, we come to about 1,000 B.C. So we just went through 200 years of history. 
And God never lost sight of his promise. He never forgot and he kept it going. Just like he said, he had established a covenant, remember? A covenant with Abraham, then with Isaac, and then with Jacob. Then made a promise through Jacob regarding Judah. And then we will see in our study, when we get to 2 Samuel, we will see how he establishes his covenant then. It moves to David and David receives the covenant. And the covenant is expanded a little bit to speak of the royal line and the throne and the, and the king and, and, and so forth, and the kingdom. So David now is the one where all of our eyes are focused. Now here's the point of these genealogies, although we still have seven more chapters. We're studying how God has taught us the irrelevance of world history, except as how God through his grace works out the purpose of redemption in bringing a savior, the savior, into the world and in his power chooses from time to time to use one of these other nations that are in history to use one of these other nations or kings to aid in the development of the promise of his redemption. King of Babylon, king of Persia, whatever, even, even Pharaoh way back. Uh, at this point, we're a little bit beyond Pharaoh. Okay. Now, here is the, so now the interest is in David. You and I then are under, to understand as we study our scriptures, this man, David, sovereignly chosen by God for a purpose, resourced, gifted, and equipped by Almighty God to do what God would have him to do as a man, as a king in his day. Remember David wrote the Psalms, you've taught my hands to do war, my fingers to do battle, and my feet to run, and all these things. David couldn't build the temple because he was the man of war. This is God, by God's design. He's a great king. And he does something that was very needful in and around 1000 BC down to about 970 or 960 BC. So now, okay, now our focus is on the family tree of David. God Almighty says, I want you to pay attention to this guy. If you're going to study your word, here it is. So David and his brothers had sisters, Zaruiah, Zaruiah and Abigail, the sons of Zaruiah, Abishai, Joab, Asael, three. Abigail bore Amasa. Okay. We're down to about 900 BC now. Okay. Absalom revolts against his daddy, Absalom. Joab had been the commander of David's armies. Joab made some poor decisions. But Amasa became the general of Absalom's armies. So here's where he came from. He, he, he came, look at this. You see, he's, he's kinship to David. So the father of Amasa was Jeter the Ishmaelite. Now that tells you something. Ishmaelites did not like Israelites. So Abigail was married to an Ishmaelite. So some bad stuff sneaks in to this story. This brings us to about 900 B.C. We go back up. Remember Hezron? Remember that guy? It picks up back with him. You have to be careful in, this, in these genealogies because you're either moving vertically or you're moving horizontally and you have to be careful when you study them. So we're back up to Hezron, okay? Caleb, the son of Hezron, begat Azubaisha and Yariot, and these were her sons, Jesher, Shabab, and Ardon. 
And Azubah died, and Caleb took to himself Ephrat, and she bore him her. Her. Okay. Her begat Uri. Do you know what his name is in Hebrew? Uri ben Hur. <laughs> okay, but that's not the guy. And Uri begot Bezalel. Now remember, we just went back up to Hezron. So we, we've left that 900 BC and we backed up to Hezron because there's a story that the chronicler wants us to see. Bezalel, you remember that guy from Exodus? I know you do. He was the guy into whose life God imparted a spirit of craftsmanship and artisanship. Man, he designed and, and hammered out all those beautiful things in the tabernacle. This was that guy right here. So when we get to him, we know we're back around 1500 B.C. Afterwards, Hezron came to the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, and he took her, and he was 60 years old, and she bore him Sagub. What a boy. What a guy. Hezron, 60 years old, had a son, Sagub. Sagub. <laughs> I see these names, and I think of how my mother used to come to the back door and call me. You could hear her all over the neighborhood when it was supper time. And I think of how they're going to call these people to supper. Sagoob. Sagoob. Oh, well. Sagoob begot Jair. And he had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. Now, this means that Sagoob, okay, Sagoob, son of Hezron, he's a tough guy. He had an army. And he took over 23 cities. Now time passes. And Geshur and Aram, this is some years later, took the villages of Jair from them. With Kedot and its villages, 60 cities. So now these people are getting in their minds who's living where and how they fit in to the story of God. And how they're related to all of these things. So we had a little story uh, just, just written into half of a sentence. A story about how a guy had enough power to take over 23 cities. And then later on, how his, what, grandson? Son. Geshu and Aram. Anyway, a couple of generations later, they took over the villages of Jair. And the villages of Kanat and 60 cities. So what you have is you have warlords and you have guys who assert themselves. They grow up. They grow armies to themselves. And there wasn't a king in that. And we, we see how, how, um, how confusing and unsafe really life would have been for these people in that day. All of these belonged to the sons of Machir, the father of Gilead. All right, so we have, we can, we can look at the Bible maps and we can get an idea of who is who and how he's connected to who, what, and where in the world these things are happening. Now, these are not important things. You won't read about these things the guy taking over 23 cities, this guy taking over villages and 60 cities. You won't read that. You, you go to your, uh, when did we study world history? Ninth grade, 10th grade, I don't know. You won't see these things in the history books. We're gonna look in a few minutes, we get to the end of the slides here, and we'll see what everybody thinks was important. But this is what God sees. Insignificant place in the world, people who otherwise would be unknown, skirmishes that otherwise would not even be thought about, but they are molding 
the geographical and geopolitical setting of the world that will eventually lead to the birth of the Christ, to the Virgin. After the death of Hezron and Caleb, uh, Ephratah, the wife of Hezron, was Abijah. And she bore him Ashur, the father of Tekoa. Now, Jeremiah, the son of Hezron. We study him now. The firstborn of Hezron were firstborn Ram, Buna, Aren, Ozem, and Ahijah. Now, Jeremiah had another wife whose name was Atara. She was the mother of Onam. And the sons of Aram, the firstborn of Jerah, Aram is the guy who is the progenitor of the Christ. Jeramael, his sons Maaz, Jamin, and Eker. The sons of Onam were Shamai and Jada. The sons of Shamai, Nadab, and Abishur. Now the name of the wife of Abishur was Abihail, and she bore him Aban and Molid. The sons of Nadab were Seled and Apaim, and Seled died without children. Now that's an interesting thing for the Holy Spirit of God to preserve in the chronology. The point is this. That was a day when children were precious. The faithful could only think of the seed of woman, surely, in that day. And they understood that children were a heritage to the Lord. And how sad to know that this one died without children. And the sons of Apain, Ishi. And the sons of Ishi, Shashan. And the sons of Shashan, Alai. The sons of Yada, the brother of Shemai, Yeter and Jonathan, and Yeter died without children. There it is again. When you get to those things, you say, well, you know, you know they don't have anything to do with the coming of the Christ. The sons of Jonathan, Pelet, Zaza. Huh. Zaza. These were the sons of Jeremiah. Sheshan had no sons, but he had daughters. Sheshan had an Egyptian slave named Jarha. Sheshan gave his daughter to Jarha, his slave, for a wife. And she bore the slave Atai. And Atai begat Natan, Natan begat Zabad, Zabad begat Efla, Efla begat Obed, Obed begat Yahud, Yahud, Azariah, Azariah, Helez, Helez begat Elasa, Elasa begat Sismai, and Sismai begat Shalom, and Shalom begat Jechamiah, and Jechamiah begat Elashima. And the world marches on, right? I mean, we just covered hundreds of years there. Now, finally, the focus is on the other descendants of Caleb. And that's because the population, the regions, the tribes, the villages, the cities, the, the provinces, these things are being shaped by the power of God. The sons of Caleb, the brother of Jerah, Ma'il, Meshah, firstborn, father of Ziph, inhabitants of Marasha, the father of Hebron and the sons of Hebron, Korah, Tapua, Rekem, and Shammah. Shammah begat Raham, the father of Jokiam, and Rekem begat Shammai, and Shammai's son was Maon, and Maon was the father of Bethzur, and Ephah, the concubine of Caleb, bore Haran, and Mozah, and Gazez, and Haran begat Gazez. The sons of Jedi, <laughs> Jedi, Regem and Jotam, Geshan, Pelet, Epha, and Sha'af. From Caleb's concubine, Me'acha, he begot Shaber and Terhana. 
Shibor Sha'af, the father of Madman, Madmanah, Shiva, the father of Machbinah, and the father of Gibeah, and Caleb's daughter was Achsa. These were the sons of Caleb, the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrata. Shobal, the father of Kedjeth Jidim. Okay, there's a place that we know about. Kedjeth Jidim in the Bible. So a person studies this and he sees that God is working meticulously in every generation. And he's bringing the people into the land and he's putting the, the land together like God intends for it to be. Salma, that's Salmon. The father of Bethlehem. Now what that means, the prince of Bethlehem, that means that he was the top dog of, of that area in his day. Haref, the father of Beth Gader. Shobal, the father of Kareth uh, Yarim, who, who ruled over half the Menachot, had sons. And the families of Kareth, Yarim, the Jethrites and the Puthites and the Shumathites and the Mishrathites, and these came from the Zorathites and the Eshtelites. So you could sit around on your front porch if you lived in that day and say, hey, you know, you remember old uh, Beth Gadar, you know, didn't he come over and didn't they live in Kajath Jerem? I don't know. That's the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. All of these places have meanings. They have developments. They have geopolitical progressions. The sons of Salma, Bethlehem, and the Netophatites, Atrot, Beth Joab, and half the Mahatites and the Zorathites. The families of the scribes. Okay. We, the scholars or the scribes, the word means either one. This is a cased of special men, scholars, whose work was very important with regard to the Word of God and to record the genealogies and the maps and all that they had. This was their job. And these guys, the descendants of these guys, are seen even in the New Testament day. Those who dwelt with Jabez... We've heard of that guy. Terathites, Shemathites, Sukkothites. They are from the Kenites who were descended from Hanat, the father of the house of Rechab. So this is very plain, very clear to the people who look at this genealogy. Taking note that God is actively at work in every part of the lives of the people, even down to where they live, and how whether or not one of them rises to be a governor or a warrior and gets up an army and defeats other cities and then makes a city-state out of it and so forth. All of these things have meaning with regard to the coming of the Christ. Now, oh, shoot, you can't see it. Okay, so we start with Judah. Right over here. And we went through all these things and I put a little green arrow out there at David's name. We've come all the way through that over here to David. Now we're making our way to Christ in the Bible. But you see all these things that have been worked through. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years coming to David. Just a name on a chart, David. And yet much of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel and much of 1 Chronicles record for us the adventures, life, and times of David the king, as well as most of the Psalms that are recorded, the recorded prayers and songs of David himself. Just a name against all these other names, but oh, what a name. What a great guy, the progenitor of the Christ. Now, I'm coming in for a landing here. Here's what's happening, meanwhile, in the rest of the world during the time frame that we've looked at, okay? Around 1200 BC, this was the time of the 19th dynasty of Egypt. From 1279 to 1212, the reign of Ramses II. 
Continuing on in the 1200s BC, the reign of Pharaoh Mernifat. Continuing on, the time of Israel being enslaved by King Jabin of Canaan. Eventually, Israel delivered by God through Deborah, Israel's only female judge. Brings us into the 1100s. From, from 1122 to 221 BC is the Chinese Chou Dynasty. Okay, they were the, they were the Sinites or the Sinites. The Sinaim. We saw them in the last chapter. How these people went to Asia, and then the those who were the Sinites, they're they're, a, they're they're the Chinese people. Here's something a great a great thing happening in the world. This great dynasty. They're creating their own medical, their own way of medicine, their own art form, their own way of fighting. They're just totally different from the rest of the world, and that develops. There's nothing in there about that. This is not where the purpose of God is focused. 1086, the time of Samson. Some of the legends that were formed after his death, one of them was the Greek legend Hercules, many believe was based on the life of Samson. In the 1000s BC, in the 1000s BC, the time of the rule of King Saul, then you move from there to the time of the rule of King David. While David was ruling, the Mayan civilization began in South America. And we know from what we've seen through works of archaeology that it was a great civilization in the Western Hemisphere. The world population in 2000 BC, which is, yeah, that's a little after Abraham's time, but it's close was 27 million people. Don't ask me how they came up with that. A thousand years later, a thousand BC, the time of David, the world population was 50 million in that day. A deeper look at this time frame. We're going to start, we're going to start down here with uh, well, in 2400 BC, Stonehenge was, in England was constructed. But let's, in our time frame, Hammurabi was the Mesopotamian king, and he began his rule. He's very popular. Uh, he's the one who wrote out a, a code of law and all those things. 1766 BC, the Shang Dynasty in the Lower River Valley of China began. 1570 was the New Kingdom of Egypt beginning. The Hittites conquered Babylon in 1531 B.C. The earliest known civilization, the Olmecs in Mesoamerica, flourished in the 1500s B.C. 1300s, Tutankhamun, King Tut, succeeded Akhenaten. Okay, so he restored Egypt to worshiping the old Egyptian gods. 1250 B.C., the ziggurat in Khuzestan in present-day Iran was built. During the same time, Moses led the Israelites on an exodus out of Egypt. 1200 B.C., Moses led them out of it. 1140 B.C., the first North African city of Utica, Tunisia, is established by the Phoenicians. 1126 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar I begins his rule as king of Babylon. 1122 B.C., the Chou Dynasty is formed in China. We already studied that. 1077 B.C., New Kingdom phase. We already studied that. Looked at that. 1070 BC, the Kushites, the kingdom of Cush down in Africa. 1050 BC, Israel is invaded and defeated by the Philistines. 1020 BC, Saul anointed king. 1000 BC, in the Battle of Gilboa, Saul is killed. David ascends shortly thereafter to the throne. All those things are happening. Thus, these and the things that we saw in the, uh, in the previous here, in this one. All these things are happening in the world. This, these are some of the things that you would see along with 1184 B.C., the capture of Troy. The Greeks united under the command of Agamemnon to attack Troy in Asia Minor. The Trojans were besieged for a lengthy period of time before submitting to the Greeks. 1140 B.C., the Second Babylonian Empire started. 1100 B.C., hostile culture. 
iron, the development of the Iron Age, used for the first time in what we know of as Austria. Then it spread throughout Europe. 1027 BC, the Shang Dynasty, a vassal tribe of Chou defeats the Shang Dynasty. That's over in China. Uh, 1090 BC, Nubia becomes independent. 1070 B.C., the collapse of Assyria. 1010 B.C., King Salka. Okay. A lot of that other stuff is what you'd see in the history books. You don't see the, you don't see the details that we see in, uh, in these, uh, in these uh, what's written for us in the genealogy. Here's the point. Today, the stock, the stock market rises and falls. There's political divide in the United States. All kinds of trouble in the Middle East. China is on everybody's minds. And then there's the threat of worldwide economic, global economic collapse. Then here comes this COVID-19 and all these other things that rage throughout the world. But God's focus is on his people. My name won't be in the history books or anything like that. But God continues to call out for himself a people working the redemption that he promised through the Christ whom he delivered into this world and through whose spirit the work of the church continues even to this day. So, okay, the world's falling apart. Some nations are stronger than others. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. Nation will rise against nation. There are wars and rumors of wars. Okay, fine. It's always been that way. But there's only one scarlet thread of redemption that works in the lives of God's own people. And that continues above and beyond all things. And this is what these chronologies, these genealogies are teaching us that we're going to continue next time. And boy, that was a long one. So whoever's got the deacon thing tonight, just take it and run with it.